Here we are. January 29th, 2012, lecture discussion number 54 on the book of Romans. And now, uh, before we begin, before we return to the tough sledding of last week of Romans 4, Hebrews 6, and James 2, and today I'm going to kind of put a little different spin on it, but it'll still be Romans 4, Hebrews 6, and James 2, because whenever you go through Scripture, you'll find that certain pieces fit together, and this is one of those pieces that you do not want to read Romans 4 without James 2 and Hebrews 6 or any combination without the others. And and I know it's tough sledding and it's brutal. I got it. Every time I attempt to cover these three passages, I get the same responses from the class, whichever class it is that I'm doing. And either the drooling deep sleep response, which is the most uh, most common, as I said, um, or the glassy-eyed hypnotic zombie uh, response, which is also very prevalent. And, and you can only accomplish the latter if you're a professional and you have to attend a class where the instructor will drop you a letter grade if you pass out during his lecture. And some of you know, you attend those at either college or at your place of work. Staying awake is a learned skill. It takes hours of training and practice. It's sometimes tape. And some of you do not have it. And that's okay. And no one knows better than me, or better than I, sorry, how rigorous these three are and how they, rigorous they can be. I have to watch the carnage whenever I do it. And uh, row by row, one by one, uh, it, people go into unconsciousness. And I don't blame you. It's not your fault. It's the presentation's fault. I am not presenting it right. Uh, but I don't know how, how to do it. I really don't. How to get it into the record. I have to get it into the record now. I have a responsibility to do so because so many people out there on the Internet are depending on me to do it. And they have the ability to listen to it for five minutes and go back to sleep. Uh, where you guys have to endure it for the whole 45 to 60, whatever the case may be. And I don't know how to get it in except by the method that I use, which is the bludgeoning method. Uh, just beat it in. That's all I know what to do. Just push it as hard as I can, all of it. If I cut it short, I can't get it in. And that's one of the reasons that I fire at it so hard and go on and on and on with it, because I can't leave anything out. And admittedly, I like the bludgeoning method. I'm drawn to it, asks Seth. Uh, though I'm aware of its limitations and the consequences. Um, you know, I've been thinking about additional income streams for Cliffside. And I thought maybe uh, we should hand out a T-shirt um, inscribed, I Survived Lecture Number 53, which was last week. Some such award like that doesn't have to be a T-shirt. I always liked uh, going to, I still do, like going to sporting events where they fire T-shirts at the crowd. It makes me laugh. Because does the T-shirt fit? No, it's four years old and it's for a 12-year-old kid. So it's, you're going to get a 2007 T-shirt to a business that doesn't exist anymore that fits a small child. But you will dive in front of people and lose all your beverages and, and your popcorn. Or Lori's brother Matt, John, and I'll tell you, we're at, a, at an arena football game and we see a total, I don't know what to describe, moron, there's the word I want, almost jump off the balcony to get one of these small little tiny kid T-shirts. And it was Matt. Lori's brother, we went, what, that guy's gonna die. And he, he le- and he catches a t-shirt, like I said, that wouldn't fit a toy poodle. I don't, I don't really get, but if people will do that, maybe it's what Cliffside needs to do, send small children-sized t-shirts to people for sitting through lecture 53. It seems like a great idea. It could make us what? A dollar a t-shirt or something. Plus shipping and handling, which is where the real money is, as you know. Okay. Before we return to the beating, I thought I'd read a letter from the Internet people, inject some Internet feedback, um, mostly because it's been cold and horrible here. What is it now? It's about, what, 10 below? It's been 10 below or worse now for, what, a month or better. 
Mike Tavalero called me and said that he went to a meeting with the, uh, with the municipality and the mayor was there and said that this is apparently the coldest stretch, coldest period with the most snow on record. So the city's getting blasted. We're not only burning up uh, heat at a re- record rate, we're also having to remove snow at a record rate. And that combination, we've been colder and we've had more snow, but the combination of this, uh, peri- or this cold and this much snow is a record. And, and, um, and Dave was telling me, in case you uh, are feeling bad, about it, uh, Fairbanks is uh, 54 below with a high of 35 below. So, who would live there? Oh, that's Kathy that said, told Dave, who would live there? Who would work there? That's right, me. I did it. That's part of the problem that I have. But um, that is why we live here in Anchorage and not in Fairbanks, because in Anchorage it's just dark and cold, and it snows every day unless it rains and the earthquakes, and it's cold, and it's dark. Did Ira tell you that any of that, Amanda, before you came here? Did he? Okay. I tried to do it as well as I could. Okay, enough of that. Letter from Janet and Dan in Oklahoma. Dear Cliffside members, just for the fun of it, we checked out Life Church TV on Saturday evening. I've never heard of Life Church TV. But it sounds like a really good idea. Just for the fun of it, we checked out Life Church TV on Saturday evening. They have a campus less than one mile from our house. We knew we were in trouble when we walked in the door because the music, if you want to call it music, was so loud we had to talk to each other's ears to be heard. Thankfully, they had a bin on the door to the sanctuary with earplugs from last week. No, I added that. I'm sure. I just thought that would be cool. Used earplugs. But no, apparently not. I don't know. I'll just say it is just to make it funnier. Of course, we grabbed some, quickly found seats, and discreetly put them in. After singing three songs with the same three notes and same three chords, and brief announcements of coming events, the sermon began. It was delivered by the head pastor in Edmond. I assume that that's by Tulsa. I don't know and was shown on three very large screen TVs. This church is so large that they have two Saturday evening services and two Sunday evening services. And by the way, that's really cool. I like it when churches do that because you can go Saturday night and kind of keep notes. Like, for example, if you went to the 6 o'clock service and the service start, or the sermon started at 6.30, you would write down 6.30 sermon started at... 6.42, pastor asked for money and cried. Money and tears. Okay. okay. And then you go from there. And then for fun, then for fun, go the next day at the 11 o'clock service. And it starts at 11.30 is the sermon. And at 11.42, he asked for money and cries again. That would make me very suspicious as to whether or not he was genuinely crying. I would suspect what? That he's acting. How can you cry at the same point for four straight services with a straight face? That's what gets me. How do you do it? Well, sometimes they tell me that they have different pastors. They still cry at 11.42 and 6.40. Anyway, where was I? This church is so large, they have two Saturday evening services and two Sunday evening services, and the auditorium is packed for each service. Just for your information, we did not notice anyone else using the earplugs. Go figure. We think this church's business model is one you should consider. (laughs) You, of course, would be the head pastor. Well, of course I would. And your Internet followers could form satellite churches. Dan and I have dibs on the Tulsa, Oklahoma campus. You could do it really cheaply if you had a PlayStation 3 so you could stream live to all your campuses. Think about it. Missing you more and more, love, Janet and Dan. Okay. Obviously, the church model in today's culture is changing rapidly, and evidently it's now possible for me to expand the bludgeoning method and print more T-shirts and sell franchises. 
That seems to be the, the, new, the new way to go. Actually, uh, for everybody's understanding, we're moving uh, towards simulcasting, and that's something that Ben and, and his committee are on, and very slowly, of course, it's just like uh, it takes a while to do this. But live television, or, or dead television, whichever best describes what I do, is in the future. So Janet and Dan are wise uh, now. They're ahead of the curve. They're securing the distribution rights to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Anyway, I just thought I'd, you'd enjoy their letter, and, and they're uh, very, very kind to us, and so I wanted to include them. Okay, where are we? What is the aftermath of lecture number 53? How much debris, how many casualties did I cause? And I know it's lots, I know it's many, and um, it's the send in the medics time today. The wounded are strewn everywhere, and I'm just going to try to recap it and reformat it so that you might be able to understand it better. And I threw something in a little bit, uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. If you remember, and, and I really don't expect you to remember anything from last week. So if you were here, that was just more or less driving the truck up and dumping it into your lap and just overwhelming you with it and hoping that some of it might stick as we went through it again. Um, but last week, I threw in the obvious relationship between 1 Timothy 6.10. So let me put that up there, 6.10. Um, and then uh, Ezekiel, um, oh, I'm sorry, John 8.44. And let's put them in order. And then Ezekiel 28, 15, and 16. There is a relationship between those three, just like these Three go together, 1 Timothy and John 8 and Ezekiel 28, 1 Timothy 6 and, and John 8 and Ezekiel 28 all also fit together. If you want to think of it this way, they equal, they equal a total, if you will. If you add those, I should add those together, um, that's going to give me a total. Or if you want them to equal each other, either way would work, however you wish to think of it. If you remember 1 Timothy 6.10, what was it last week? Remember what it is. It's a very important scripture that it's often misanalyzed. It is the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's very important because it's the root, which means it's the origin. The love of money is the origin, and the word is all evil. And, and that asks, begs the question, how much evil is all evil? I will, suspect, uh, I will submit to you that all means all here. How is it that the love of money is the root of all evil. What would most people say is the root of all evil? They wouldn't say it's the love of money. They would say it's what? They would say it's a person or it's free will. What person would they say is the root of all evil? They would say Satan is the person, right? Well, Satan uh, will be removed from the world at some point here. It's part of Scripture. How much evil will remain? We won't notice the difference. It doesn't even seem we can measure the difference. So making Satan the root of all evil is not necessarily going to be a good position to defend at some point. But anyway, the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's connected to this to John 8.44, where Christ, these are Christ's words. Who is Christ? He's God and he is the creator of Satan. He is the one who made Satan. And he made Satan with free will. So you've got to ask the question immediately, did he make you with free will? Yes. Why did he make us? Why did he create a human being or an angelic being? And in Satan's case, he's a cherubim, and where he is called a living creature as opposed to an angel. Cherubs and, uh, and uh, seraphim are living creatures. So, obviously, what's the difference between an angel and a living creature? Uh, Satan is, is created by God, created by Christ. Same thing, right? Same sentence. That's the same meaning. With a free will. Why? So let me read John 8.44. He, Satan, was a murderer. Christ is saying this. The creator of Satan. From the beginning. What's the obvious question now? From the beginning of what? From the beginning he was a murderer. From the beginning of his creation? It obviously cannot be from the beginning of his creation. So, from the beginning of what? 
He is a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When did it happen that there is no truth in him? Has there always been no truth in him? Yes or no? No. He had a period of time. How long a period of time before he fell? Very important questions. The fall of Satan. Let me read it again. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks the lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And that, of course, is connected to Satan. This is Ezekiel 28, 15 through 16 now. Satan, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So that answers a couple of questions right off the bat, right? He was perfect when he was created. And there came a time when he fell. What's the obvious question now? How long? How long was the period of time before, from his creation to his fall? Let me go back and read it again. Satan, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until sin was found in you. There's the question. When was sin found in him? How long did he go before the sin was found in him? Why was he given the free will to sin? Why are you? Why was humanity? Might be a better way to frame that. Until sin was found in you. What's the next question about Satan? What sin was it? By the abundance of your traffic, and that is a very important phrase that most people pass over. The abundance of your traffic. That means something. That means that Satan went from angel to angel to angel, one at a time, and told this lie to them. How many angels, how many seraphim, how many cherubim were fooled by this lie? What percentage? Some people will say 33. Is there a difference between being fooled by the lie and falling? That would be the next question. Is there a difference between falling out of heaven and and following Satan and being fooled? By the way, let's just talk about humanity. How many people in humanity have been fooled by the lie of Satan? He he got everybody, didn't he? Everybody. How many angels did he get? How smart is he? He is the most intelligent being ever created, according to Ezekiel 28. Filled to the brim with wisdom. Who is it that he did not fool? Who is it that he did not deceive? You have to have that immediately. Adam. He did not deceive Adam. So how smart is Adam? Have no position where Adam is dumb. You can't, you can't defend it in Scripture. By the abundance of your traffic, by going from angel to angel, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And when you see God casting Satan away, you immediately think of Revelation 12 where he's cast. But you also should think of Matthew 4 where Christ says, away, away with you, Satan. And that's uh, one of the places where Satan begins to understand that Christ uh, is God. Because only God has the kind of power it takes to throw Satan aside. Those three... Uh, 1 Timothy, John 8, uh, 1 Timothy 6, John 8:44, Ezekiel 28. Got to study them together, and hopefully you can see my little brief um, uh, overview of them why that is. All three deal with the sin of Satan, the origin of sin, the free will decision of Satan to lie, and that results in murder, the death of others, and many, many questions now come flying out of us, at us, out of these three. Uh, uh, passages, virtually thousands of questions will come out now. And they're all very tough, so let's try to take on a couple of them. The first obvious question, who were the first murdered? 
From the beginning, he was a murderer. By the abundance of his traffic, he was filled with violence within. And, and, and persons got murdered. Who got murdered? Who was the first murdered? Second obvious question. Excuse me. <coughs> How does God define murdered? Okay. God, it's, this is Christ talking, and he says, from the beginning, he was a murderer. And I asked who got murdered, and what does murdered mean to God? Does it mean the same as to, to him as it means to you or to us? You have to have the correct definition in order to understand what is being taught here. Is it physical death or spiritual death? Because there's a difference. What is physical death? We know physical death. But who got murdered? Who got murdered first? You can make the case it was Eve. You can make the case it is Abel. Many, we'll get to that in a minute. But you are disregarding where the sin went first. Where did the sin go first? It went to the angelic host. Can I murder an angel? God's definition. Does God have a definition of temporary physical death or temporal physical death? Or does he have a definition of murder that means eternal condemnation of the spirit essence or the spirit being, if you will? <coughs> Okay? Keep in mind Matthew 25:41. What's Matthew 25:41? God made something for the angels that fell. Would he call the angels that fell murdered? He made something. What did he make? Matthew 25:41. Very important. He made the lake of fire. It says very clearly that the lake of fire was first prepared for who? Satan and his demons. Okay? And he throws in humanity that chooses to go there as well. Notice how I said that. Free will decision. So that causes second obvious question addendum A, right? If the lake of fire was prepared for Satan and his fallen angels, then what's the obvious question? When was it prepared? So now, let's, let's go ahead. See what our problem is? i got a timeline to deal with. There's my timeline. And I'm going to say, this is the place where Satan is created. Creation of Satan. Where's the fall of Satan? Obviously, after the creation of Satan. Wouldn't you agree? Here is the time that Adam was created. Where do you want to put the fall? Do you want to put the fall of Satan here, after Adam was created, or would you like to put it before Adam is created? You get to choose. You have free will. But whatever position you pick, oh, this is my fun place. Would everybody that thinks that Satan fell before Adam was created, would you please go over and keep? No, you don't have to. But I used to do that, you know, and I, I ended a marriage with that. I didn't really, but they fought right in front of everybody in church because she wouldn't go where he was, she was supposed to go. So I've never asked people to move again just to, for the sake of the children. <laughs> That's a true story, isn't it, Bill? That really did happen. And I, he, he got up in the middle of the church service and yelled at his wife, You are in error. And that was really great. I wish I could do it again. But I can't, I can't seem to get it done anymore. But you have to decide where the fall of Satan is. Obviously, it is after the creation of Satan. And then you have to ask, where is the fall of the angels? When did they fall? Remember, the lake of fire was created for Satan and his fallen angels. When was the lake of fire created? After the creation of Adam or before the creation of Adam? You have many things that you're going to have to put in your timeline. Right? Have to place the lake of fire. And now... Here's the key question. The lake of fire, was it created before the creation of Satan and the angels? Is there a group of theologians that says it is created? You all said no. 
But there are some that says that the lake of fire was created before the creation of Satan and the angels. What would that mean? Well, God's omniscient. Huh? Yeah, you end up in a predestinational hyper-Calvinism spin now and off you go. And you're, you're attacking the free will of the angelic host if you have that view. You can have that view. It's a very popular view. It's probably um, more, uh, 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 there's more of them than there is of me, I can tell you that for sure. Because they, they come and see me a lot more. They don't like what I have to say. How you answer all of those questions and put your timeline in, that's going to affect how you answer other questions. Like I said, it's going to affect the free will question. It's going to affect Matthew 4. Uh, Just a warning to you. Now, it should be noted and inserted here that many esteemed commentators have concluded that murderer does not refer to Eve or to the angelic host, but it refers to Cain and Abel. Um, Meaning specifically that Satan caused Cain to kill Abel with a lie because they believe that Cain killing Abel is the first recorded murder as they define murder. I don't believe that when Christ said a murderer from the beginning, he was referring to Cain, Abel, or Eve. I think his definition of murder is spiritual death, not physical death. And you have human death versus angelic death. By the way, put in your timeline, as I said, who died first, a human or the angel's? If I'm correct and that angelic death is spiritual death, who, who suffered death first? Angelic beings or humans? Okay? Now, the third obvious question. What was the lie? He trafficked. He went to angel to angel and he told a lie. What was the lie? What lie did he tell? And by the way, he knew it was something. What did he know it was? He knew it was a lie. He knew he was lying. Did they know he was lying? He deceived them, didn't he? He's called the great deceiver. Um, what lie? What is Satan's lie? And that's how we get to Ezekiel 28, 15, 16, as you have undoubtedly already figured out. Because Ezekiel 28, 16 is where the first lie of Satan occurs. Satan is the origin, or he's the father of all lies, it says in Scripture. He told the first lie. He conceived the first lie. And then now the fourth obvious question. Okay. Why did he lie? What's his motive? Not only to whom did he lie, but why? What's he trying to accomplish? He knows it's a lie. They don't. He's smarter than them. He knows that, and they know that. And he lies. How long did he sit on his lie before he put it into operation? How long did he wait? Your timeline says, here's when he's created. By the way, what do uh, most uh, um, people who've taken this on, most of them are Jewish, how long do they they say Satan existed before he lied? They say a hundred years. So if you have that view, you got Satan right here. There's the lie. So, if that position is correct, then how far away from Adam is, or from Satan's lie, and the and the devastation that it would have wreaked in the angelic host? How long from the devastation to the creation of Adam, if that's your view, or if you have the lie on this side? Now, when you read Genesis, you can't necessarily know for sure how it's going. Yes. It could be. I mean, you, you, it, you would have to say that when Adam was created, Satan was still perfect. Yeah, well, it, it, most people say Adam fell at, 30, or at 70. Because 930 plus 70 is a thousand and I have a thousand years for the first Adam. But then some people say, well, Christ uh, has a thousand years and he was 33, so I have a thousand thirty-three to deal with. And so uh, that changes the amount. All of that, look, I'm just going to give it to you. Well, do I have a view? Yes, I do. 
and I could tell you what I think, and then what would what would happen? What's that? Oh, it does. It does. But here, let me ask you this question: When Adam was created, and in the garden, had Satan already fallen? Some are going. Some are. It's great. This is just great. Could you kind of argue during the buffet and not eat anything? Because I think I'm going to have to hit it pretty hard tonight. Well, that's a very good point. A bill, for those of you on the Internet, has the creation of Eve right here. And uh, how long... Listen, you cannot... You have to understand the Hebrew recurrence principle... um, and all this kind of thing that happens in Scripture. Hebrews write different than us. They will write an overview, and then they will give you specific information. Genesis is not chronological. But here, before I pick up Ben's question, uh, did the fall of Satan occur between the, the building of Eve and the creation of Adam? Yes. Satan was created perfect. Ezekiel 28 makes it very clear. If he was not created perfect, then what have you done? You have, you have made God create somebody imperfect, which makes God the what? The author of imperfection, which is what? Sin. And now you've got God, the creator of death and evil. Can't do that. Isaiah 5.20. So that's why these timelines are fun and important. Ben, Go. What's that? Mineral Eden. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, very good. Thank you. I have two Edens. I have the, the mineral Eden, and I have the physical or the organic Eden. Okay. Is it the same Eden? I think you can make the case it is the same Eden. So when did it go from mineral Eden? By the way, if you look at Revelation, you'll see that it returns to a combination of both mineral and organic. When did it go from mineral to organic? How long? It's pretty much the same question as Satan, you see, is in charge of Eden. And then there comes a period of time where he's not in charge of Eden, and Adam is. So what's he think of Adam at that point? Adam's driving my car. He's sitting in my house. He's got control of my stuff. I want it back. And that's, uh, by the way, uh, very obvious. Okay. Why did he lie? What was his motive? What was his purpose of lying? And how does this connect to the love of money is the root of all evil? I am connecting the root of all evil, which is the origin of all evil, or the foundation of all evil, to the father of all lies, the origin of lies, the first lie. Root and first, I am putting them together. Okay? Where is the equivalence? is what I'm asking, between the first lie and the root of all evil. How are they the same? How does one go about answering all these questions? And how many of the questions did I give you on your timeline problem? Not even 2%. This is brutal, baby. It really is. You've got lots of things, lots of pieces to put in there that most of you have never thought about. And by the way, what is the angelic host doing? If they have fallen before Adam and they see Adam being created, what do they think Adam is? They'll look at it inside of time and they'll see it as what? As a response to what? To the destruction that has happened in the angelic host. And then they'll see Adam, they'll see Eve fall. See, they, they, why did Christ add humanity, ultimately, is where you're headed in all of this. But we don't have time to do all of that. But uh, the angel, angelic host is a part of this. this. We are on display for them, the Bible says. Why? Why are we on display? How we doing, by the way? Yeah, not so good. If I was an angel going this, I'm dependent on these, these idiots? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> anyway, it's really funny, by the way, uh, so you understand this. I get almost everybody who corresponds with uh, me, uh, either by phone or some by email, they always tell me the same thing. They say, you're really funny for a pastor, which I don't think I'm all that funny. Sometimes I'm hardly 
even awake. I fall asleep during the sermon as much as you guys, so I don't really think I'm that funny. But they think I am, which is what? Cause for concern. You're absolutely right. How, how, how boring are these pastors out there? They've got to be awful if I'm the standard. Anyway, how is, what's the equivalence? How are they the same, the first lie and the root of all evil? How does one go about answering all these questions, not to mention the thousands that I've left out that are flooding out of Ezekiel 28? And how do you deal with all of this? How do I start to answer these things? What's the method that I need to do to answer all of these questions? That's right. Absolutely right. The way you answer questions is to ask more questions. That's obvious. Like this one. If somebody loves money, and we all know people that love money. Who's the first per- When I'm talking about loving money, who's the first persons that I think, what profession do I think loves money more than any other profession? That's right, the pastor profession. That's right. I mean, I'm, well, I'm dead serious about that. If somebody loves money, and we all know people that love the money. What's the obvious question? Why? Why does he love the money? Because you wouldn't naturally think he would love the money, would you? Wouldn't that? It, you don't want to go around and say, "Hey, there's there's Fred, and Fred loves money." When I say that you love, what am I hoping you love? It's that old statement that says, uh, love people and use things and not the other way around, right? You're supposed to love living beings. You're not supposed to love uh, your guitar or your hairpiece or whatever it is that you love. If someone loves money, what makes them? Why do they love money? What's their motive for loving money? What makes money something that they would love? And the Bible is very clear. People love money. Why? What do they get from it? And, and if you love something, then what's the, what's the obvious conclusion? If you have something that you love and it is money, then you have something that you what? Hate. Just a sec. I'll be right to you. So, if you love money, then I want to know, oops, it didn't spell money very well then I want to know, what is it that you hate? Yes? Well, that's a, that's a, yes, and that's ultimately, and you've read your Henry Morris, because he's absolutely right. Henry Morris, a wonderful theologian who has now gone to his reward, has put hatred, love of money in conflict with hatred of, uh, of uh, uh, e- eternal life which is where Dave just went, but he's way ahead of the teacher now, and I'm only on page six, and I've got hardly any more to go. I don't think anyone will fall asleep again. Okay, some already have. Don't feel bad for them. They need the rest. I need to provide as much rest as I can. That's a function of the church, and I'm very good at it. If he loves somebody, what does he or she hate? And notice the famous biblical principle. I'll read it to you. You know this principle. You have heard it even if you've not been a Bible student. You know it's in here just like you know the love of money is the root of all evil is in here. And it is Matthew 6. So let's go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is very important to you, by the way. It tells you when you pray, go into your secret place so you're not a hypocrite. Okay, But it also tells you 6.24, if I can find it, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. See what's going on again? He will love one and hate the other. So if you love money, you hate the other. What is the other? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. What are the others? What is the opposite of money? What's it say? No, the opposite of money... You cannot serve God and money. So if you love money, what do you hate? Better, who do you hate? You hate God. Ooh, that's a problem. You and Wampum, big trouble. Why did God 
do this. Those are the words of God. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. God and money are opposite with respect to love. The choice is made plain. You love God or you love money. They're mutually exclusive. Either you will hate the one or you, and, and, and love the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. Loving money results in hating God. Loving money is the root of all evil. I would expect it to be the root of all evil and to hate God. That would make perfect sense to me. The Bible is, is marvelously, isn't God lucky when, with his Bible? He, he just gets it right perfectly every single time. Gosh, he's so lucky. As an aside, here we'll throw in a little political stuff that makes people mad all over the Internet. What do we say to the churches who love money? Do we have churches that love money? Oh, yeah, baby, we do. Three big television screens. I don't know what I would do if there was three big television screens of me up there. That would be really weird. I would probably stop in the middle of the sermon and turn around and watch me. Just like everybody else. That would be cool. Look at what me is doing, I would think. How much money does it take to operate like that? What do we say to the churches who love money, whose entire focus is to accumulate money? And you know it's true. I watch them on TV. You can't go two minutes into the sermon and they're begging you for more money. In fact, you could just hold up a sign every five minutes and say, ask for money. They would think you were on staff. It would be great. It would be very funny. They would say, we need that guy to turn that sign around. What do we say to churches whose entire focus is to accumulate money and property and enrich their leaders? That, by the way, is the Revelation 3.16 church, Laodicea. If you're pursuing money as a church, then what are you not doing? You are doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do. If you're finding you're a church that loves money, then you need to know that you are a church that hates God. I tell people all the time, I'm clearly the worst embezzler ever in church history. Just come see what I drive and where I live. Or I'm the best. But I'm definitely not normal either way. That goes without saying, doesn't it? I'm not normal. Loving money is hating God. How so? How is that the case? The first lie of Satan is the same as the loving money. Which is the root, which is the root, the beginning of all evil. Murderer from the beginning equals love of money, beginning of evil, which is hating God. How does all of this work itself out? Well, hopefully you've begun to ask the most obvious of the obvious questions, which would be the definition of hating God. What is the definition of hating God and the definition of loving God? Well, that should be pretty easy. If I could figure out what the definition of either is, I should have the other, wouldn't I? If I could find the definition of loving God, then I would be able to understand the definition of hating God. So we'll start at John 15, 14, 15. That will help a lot. Because he puts it in kind of a military uh, context, if you will, because he is the commander. He says, if you love me, you will obey my direct orders. Or you will keep my commandments. So he puts himself in, um, he is, if you will, he is the commander. It's called, he calls himself that, and he has called that in scripture. If you love me, uh, you will follow my orders. You will keep, obey, you will obey my direct order. Um, keep my commandments. So, so what did he command us to do? And here is John 14, uh, 8, or I'm sorry, yeah, John 14, 8 through 14, where the context is. For all of that. Ah, go ahead and turn there. I don't know how I'm, I'm looking at the time. We'll be fine. You'll survive the bludgeoning. Don't worry. This is the famous Philip question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is sufficient for us. That's the context of keep my commandments. When he says, if you love me, you'll, you'll follow my direct order. And the context of that statement made by Christ is the Philip's demand. 
where he says to Christ, show us the Father. How good a question is that? What is that? If Jesus Christ were standing here today, and of course he is omniscient and he's omnipotent and he's omnipresent, so he is here today. He can't help but be here. He's infinitely big and the universe is not infinite in spite of what they tell you. So, if I said to Christ, just hypothetically, grant me the hypothetical, show me the Father, how am I doing? I do it good. Philip says to Christ, show us the Father. It's the famous show us the Father question. One of the stupidest things ever said by a human being. How do you think Philip feels about that right now? He's going, oh, I am in Scripture forever saying something profoundly ignorant. And Peter's right there with him going, I'm worse than you, baby. I didn't, I didn't know he was God either. Philip is challenging the deity of Christ. He is saying something that is said in churches all over this country over and over and over again. He is saying that there is a difference between who and who. God and Christ. There is no difference between God and Christ. To say so is profound. What's the word I want? Profound, deep. You can't, it is, the, yes, the word is stupidity. You cannot say anything more stupid than show me the Father. You can't do it. Philip did it. Happens every Sunday. He's challenging the deity of Christ. Philip is saying directly to Jesus Christ's face, the face of God, he is saying to him that you are not God. And Jesus responds this way. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? I've been with you a long time, and you don't know that I'm God, Philip. Then he says, He who has seen me, Philip, I'm adding Philip, has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father. How can you say something so stupid? Philip. The words that I speak... Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own But the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in is, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What's the say, what's the works themselves? What work is he doing? He's doing redemptive work. The Lord God Almighty in the flesh gives Philip a direct order. And he says later in 14.15 of John, If you love me, you will keep this direct order. What is the direct order? I'll read it again. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. That's the direct order. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Christ declares that He is what? How much space does it take to hold the Father? Okay, I'm going to draw the, I'm going to draw the unit. First, I'm going to draw God's hand, okay? There's just His hand. And I know that's not really good. It looks more like some kind of radioactive plant. It's been burnt by uranium. But I'm going to put, I like especially the fingernail part, I'm going to put the universe in God's hand, okay? I'm going to do it for you. Here is the universe. Okay, everybody see it? That is the universe. It's not visible in the hand of God. How big is, this is the hand. How big is God? How big of a container does it take to contain God? And what does Christ say? The Father is in me. What's He saying? 
He's saying that he is infinite. And he says, believe me that I'm infinite. I am omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. How big is the Father? What is required for one to be in the Father and the Father in me? To love God is to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Christ gives us things to believe, commandments to believe. And it's a list of characteristics, if you will, that are true about him. You will believe them if you love God, if you love Christ. You will believe. That's his commandment. Keep that order. And thus, conversely, if you love money, you will not believe what he says to believe, and you will hate him. That's how it goes. Loving money is the root of all hate. It is the root of all evil. Because it is evil to not believe who Christ is. It is a disobeying of a direct order. And it's evil. Why does somebody love money? What does money represent to them? What, what causes someone to love money? What do they want to do with the money? What do they want to do with the money? If I give you money, what would you do with it? The people are different. Some people will take the money and they will just put it in the room like Scrooge McDuck and take baths in it. And they will have the money and they will hoard the money. What do they think the money is doing for them? What will the rest of us do with the money? We will burn it like, like we throw it. It's gone. It'll go, we will what? We will spend it on what? What will we get? Stuff. That's right. And then we'll have to build a building to keep our stuff. We'll have a stuff building. This is my building with my stuff. So you're going to buy things. And here's the most important thing you're going to do with it. You're going to pay. You're going to pay and buy. Okay? Pay for things. Buy things. You might buy people. Is it possible to buy people? Oh, yeah. It surely is. And it happens every day in the political arena, doesn't it? It's happening now. All we have to do is watch. People buy elections and things. You see, once again, we have this collision of polar opposites. Just like, remember where we started? We have Romans 4. On one side, we have believing God. What was on the other side? Him who works, right? So you can either believe God or you are on the him who works side. If you believe, if you're on the him who works side, do you believe God? No, you don't. And if you don't believe God, who are you believing in? You've got to be believing in yourself that you can affect your own salvation. And then what are you saying about Christ, Philip? Now make the logical connection. The first lie, the murdering from the beginning... Loving coins or pieces of paper instead of believing what God says is true about himself. Ultimately, it comes down to who pays. Because we have to buy something and we can't buy it. So who pays? Something has to be bought. What has to be bought? Salvation has to be bought. Can you pay for yours? No, because you're trying to buy blood. Blood's infinite. It has life in it. How, How expensive is it? It's very expensive. You can't buy it. It's infinitely expensive. So somebody has to pay that has the capacity to pay for it. So who pays for infinite blood for you so that you can get a blood transfusion and you can live? Who pays for it? Can you pay for it? No. If you love money, what are you trying to do? You're trying to pay for it? It Ultimately, as I said, it comes down to who pays, which means who is able to pay for it, And then what's the next question? Just because you're able to pay for it, what do you have to do next? You have to be willing to pay for it. Who is that? Who is able to pay for it? And who is willing to pay for your salvation? Who's able to buy you? Can you buy yourself? Why would you try? To attempt to pay for yourself is to say what about the character of God? What are you saying when you attempt to pay? Well, if you have a works-based salvation system, you see why it's the opposite of believing God? And if you love God, then you believe Him. So if you have a works-based system of salvation, then what do you do? You hate God. Why? Why do you hate God? You love the ability of yourself to pay? 
You like denying your reliance on God? You don't have any ability to pay, and you have to rely on God. Let me help you explain. I'll explain why you have to rely on God. I'll give you a few little helpful things. Because a lot of people say, I saw a guy played for the Baltimore Ravens, I think. He said, we don't need God when we play football. You see that? How stupid was that? I mean, I had trouble for saying stupid all the time. But I can't help say stupid all the time because so many things are stupid. You don't need God to play football? Do you need this? I think you do. How about this? That seems pretty good. How about this? Do you need that? How about this? Air, water, bread, light. It is not a coincidence that God calls himself the breath. Christ calls himself the breath. Calls himself the, uh, the living water. Calls himself the bread of life. Calls himself the light. If you are in the darkness, you will die. You need light to live. You need air to live. You need water to live. You need bread to live. You need God to live, much less play football. How dumb are you? Now, consider the first lie of Satan, the abundance of your traffic. I'll, I'll, I'll probably not finish it. Boy, I really want to finish it. Consider the first lie of Satan, the abundance of your traffic. The first lie of Satan must contain a denial of God's goodness, God's love. must contain it. It must say that God lies. It must say that God is unable or unwilling or unqualified. Unqualified is the same as unable to do something. And that's something, and that's something that God says is true uh, and is not true. That's what that first lie has to say. God is saying something that is true and it's not true. Look at what he says to Eve. That, by the way, is unbelief. Disobeying the direct order to believe. You must believe it's a direct order. If you don't believe, you don't love God, you hate God. If you do love God, you will believe what he says about himself. Unbelief in God will require that you believe in something else or someone else. Okay? You can either believe in Christ and have life or you can believe in not Christ. Who's the not Christ? Okay, we'll call it the Antichrist. Will people believe in the Antichrist for their life? They will. How's it going to work out for them? Not good. Not loving God will result in you loving somebody else, either yourself or Satan. If you do not love him who is good, your only choice that remains is to love or worship someone who is evil. It's really not very complicated. Choose God who is spirit and truth, John 4.24, or choose something or someone that is physical and a lie. You either choose the creator or you choose the created. And if you have money, what do you buy with it that you're so anxious to get? You're anxious to get something that is what? Physical, created, made. Either the creator or the created. Do you believe the creator or are you deceived by the creation? Remember, when God describes you and me and us, He's always referring to us as a living soul. We are never called a body by God. He always calls us a living soul. He never refers to us as a physical being. He always calls us a living being, a spiritual being. Money is physical. It's marinated in physical. Pure, total, absolute physical is what money is. So when you're loving money, you're loving the physical. When you're saying to the face of Christ that you love money, you're loving the physical. And then you don't believe him. You don't believe him. The answer is no, you don't believe him. Okay, remember last week I said Hebrews 6, I should read it, but I don't have time. Look at the musicians, they're pushing me off the stage again. Much to your delight. I get it, I know. It's impossible to be for Christ to be re-crucified. Do you remember that? It's impossible for Christ to be re-crucified. You can't do it. it. Christ cannot be crucified again. It's impossible. The impossible in Hebrews 6 controls both clauses. You cannot crucify Christ again. Impossible. Have no position that demands he can be re-crucified. Because if you do, then what's your name? Philip. 
Just tattoo Philip on your forehead. Or stupid, either way. Sorry, going to get in trouble for that. I'm not really sorry. To say that he is not God is the Philip demand. It is to say that you do not believe him when he says that he is infinite creator, omniscient God. And you do not believe that he is good. You do not believe that he loves. You do not believe that he is able to pay. And you do not believe he is willing to pay. That is the consequences of loving money and being Philip. And you should be ashamed to say such a thing. You should be ashamed to utter the response of Philip. I promise you that Philip is ashamed of it. Let's rise and be dismissed.